Aki. Naganago, Mekoche, Chestokom Aki. Today is the 10th of, of April, and I want to welcome everybody to our, our book club, Chapters and Chat. And uh, yeah, just for folks who may not know, our, we've actually been reading something Indigenous since 2016. So it's been a while, monthly uh, book club. And it's really great to have you all here. And I'll start by doing a land acknowledgement. Oki Naganago Mekoche Chestokomaki. My name is Michelle Robinson. I use she and her pronouns. I tried to say hello. My name is uh, Red Thunder Woman in uh, Blackfoot to honor the Blackfoot as I'm on stolen Blackfoot territory. Uh, my Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake Tribe in Treaty 11. My name in uh, Satu Dene is Dekots Nagotine Siku. Um, my people wore rabbit skin. So we, um, we've been referred to as the land of the hair people as well. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Klinchotine Indahe and Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born here in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name, which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife Dene. My father um, is actually a son of the Mayflower and a son of the American Revolution. So that's all here. And I always want to acknowledge that uh, Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2SLGBTQ plus community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, imposed straight agenda, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. And I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share my journey as I walk the red road and I'm grateful that you all join me. Uh, I want to do, a, um, it's important that land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage everyone to introduce themselves and acknowledge their ancestors, stories of displacement, and how you perceive your role as a treaty partner. I think this particular book club is going to be really great at really discussing that. So uh, I want to start by acknowledging that we're on Blackfoot territory. Um, the Blackfoot Confederacy has taken care of these lands for thousands and thousands of years uh, since time immemorial is what all Indigenous folks say. And uh, so the Blackfoot Confederacy consists of uh, the Blackfeet nations south of the imposed US-Canadian border, Siksika, Gainai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. And then in 1877, which we are going to discuss today, Treaty 7 was signed with the Wesley Chiniki Bears Pond Nations of the Stony Nation and the Dene from Sutina. I always acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. And now after you have read Treaty 7, you would, I hope after my land acknowledgement teaching, after reading this book, you understand why I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status and non-status across Turtle Island, but I don't acknowledge Métis Region 3 as it was imposed. It was not negotiated with treaty. And if we're going to have truth and reconciliation, we have to start with truth. So we'll start there. And um, in this book club, our rules are to let Indigenous people speak first, but I think I'm the only Indigenous person. And because it's my book club, I speak first anyway. So it's uh, kind of redundant to talk about that today. Uh, so just I'm grateful you're all here. 
I recently read a statistic that just broke my freaking heart. And it was how um, they're trying to start to encourage adult literacy because they're finding that um, adults actually have a really poor uh, reading comprehension. So hats off to you all for just being avid readers. Let's start there. <laughs> so um, I, you know what, I'm gonna actually, cause I, I love this book. I hope it really honed into folks what Treaty actually was. And I am going to just start Marnie, Carol, Kat, Marla, Mike, uh, Shelly, our friend, and Wendy, we're just gonna start going through it and uh, tell me what you thought of this book. Hi folks, I'm sorry I'm a bit late. Um, well, I've wanted to read this book for a long time. It's been on my shelf for several years and I, I, I had only gotten through the first introduction where they list all the people. And it is uh, mesmerizing, this book. Um, so what do I want to say about it? It certainly feels like the kind of information that no one who lives here should not have. It feels, um, and I, um, as you may know, I'm also a US citizen a citizen of that so-called United States. And I just read 1619, um, which is the story of the United States history from the black perspective, mm. which is also history you're never taught, right? It mm. doesn't even exist. Yep. And this is the same. And so I didn't go to school here. One of my thoughts is I didn't go to school here. So I never learned history from the white colonial Canadian perspective. Mm. So as I learn Canada's history, it's clearing the plains in this book that are, so I, which I realize might not be a norm. Um, so it's terrific. It's sometimes dense to read, but it's so, it's so interesting. And I noticed as I get to the end that all the pictures at the beginning with the various chiefs and so on, suddenly they have meaning, you know, um, who, who came in to, to speak and, and uh, anyway, I, I just, I'm babbling because I haven't thought and I didn't expect to go first because I don't usually. So um, I'm not sure I have anything intelligent to say except that I've written all over the book and um, it feels, it feels so important as a white person here, as a white settler to understand that the reason I am here the way I am is ultimately, I think, because of, I'd almost say fraud. And um, I know that people like Crowfoot, they say that, that people like Crowfoot trusted the Mounties and, and were grateful, or at least the Northwest Mounted Police, and were grateful that they were there and cleared up the whiskey trade. But the only reason the whiskey trade existed in the first place was because we were here. Um, so this, I think as a treaty person, uh, you know, I'm new in this, even though I've lived here most of my life, I'd be honest that I'm, you know, a typical white person, this is new for me. And so in the last several years, just learning, I think is my treaty obligation now, learning, learning and um, 
meeting people and honoring. And so reading the various reports that we're reading. Um, I, I, I was thinking several times, Michelle, as I read this book, how grateful I am for this book club because um, I have read things that I didn't know existed and that means a lot. And, um, and then I can share them with other people because I think part of my job is gathering my cousins Mm-hmm. metaphorically cousins and letting them know what what this is all about so mm-hmm. forgive my inarticulateness today and just to say also that all my career I worked in adult literacy so um, I have a, a strong connection to the gift of reading and the need to read and um, and that is not to be confused with having disregard for oral history that's not to be confused with putting the written word above anything else. Because I think there are a lot of literacies. Literacy is about reading and it can be the word, it can be the land, it can be the weather. Sure. And yeah, so thank mm-hmm. you. I, this book's very important. I'm very glad we read it and I, I've wanted to for ages and I appreciate that we have. Isn't that, that's the point of the book club is that we all have these books on our shelf and we need to make the time to read them. So like, honestly, I'm just grateful I can read it with you all. So thank you, Marnie. I appreciate that. Uh, Carol, then Kat, you're up. Thanks, Michelle. So I have the book and I haven't finished it because it is a dense book. Mm -hmm. And when I started to read it, I had to say to myself, you need to read this slowly because there's a lot in it. There's a lot in it in every line. But the other thing that I was doing simultaneously was reading this book on ethics and um, epistemic knowing. So an epistemic meaning how we come to know things, how we learn things. And it, on every page is Amanda Fricker, who is an ethicist, what she says, and I'm going to take my glasses off to read because I'm sure. Mr. McGoo here. Does anybody even know who Mr. McGoo is? I know who um, Mr. McGoo is, I promise. Okay. So, um, Amanda Fricker, she talks about the ways in which we routinely and unfairly dismiss knowledge claims from those unlike ourselves. And she argues that this causes deep and wide social harm as well as diminishing our own knowledge. And so when I read the book and then I was reading hers simultaneously, I thought, this is what I'm reading. This is what I'm reading. My my head's going back and forth. And she talks about testimonial injustice. Mm. testimonial injustice is um it's very complicated but it's when someone is i would say giving us their oral history but their oral history is devalued and it is devalued because of who they are oh carol you are as soon as you said it i thought this is what the trc denial folks are all about so as soon as you said it like you because they, they think lesser of us as Indigenous people that we're lesser because they have that white supremacist belief system. So their oral testimony of what happened in the TRC or, or the MMIW report for that matter, it's lesser, it's degraded, it's not worthy to them. Because like you said, it's a belief system. So I honestly, you couldn't have read a better book and be bringing in better points to talk about how it applies to this book too. And I think the important thing um, about it is is that it's an injustice and we talk about it and it's within the realm of what's called a hermeneutic injustice 
where there's something that happens. It's wrong. It's moral, a moral wrong to people, but we have we we can't always identify it. And so for the longest time, um, indigenous people suffered this moral justice, but there's no clear word for it. Mm. But the word is racism. The word is racism. Yeah. So I mean, my head was going. <laughs> So, and I echo um, Marty's sentiments, like, I am very happy that I'm learning. And I feel like I know something now that I'm reading this book that others don't. Yeah. So thank you. Oh, right. Isn't it great that they put together this book? I'm so grateful to read it all with you. Thank you, Carol. Kat, go ahead. I agree that everyone who moves to Treaty 7 should get this book. It should be given to them mm. upon arrival. And they should be quizzed on it at the end. Um, it's, yeah, it was a pretty tough read, obviously, to read how gross the, the whole um, process was. And it basically says, you know, on page 197, mm. these agents of Europe Canadian society showed scarcely any ability to appreciate the communal economy and social practices of the populations with whom they came into contact. They did not approach the treaty process as equals, negotiating with equals, but rather as superiors with inferiors. This was a major disadvantage for the Aboriginal leadership who came to negotiate Treaty 7 in good faith. Yeah. So yeah, as I say in my own land acknowledgement, Treaty 7 was a broken promise from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, I also really appreciated the um, Eurocentric and Aboriginal um, ways of looking at things on page 202 and 203. I mean, that pretty much, that's it. That's everything that tells you how white people see things, how indigenous people see things. And yeah. clearly with language too, language in uh, settler society is, or white society is noun-based and in indigenous society, it's verb-based. So there's like two completely different ways of communicating with each other. And the fact that they didn't have anybody who could leap and speak the, the language of the indigenous people. It's and embarrassing, isn't it? I know. And Jerry Potts was drunk the whole time. And it's like they had all these interpreters who couldn't do the job. And no wonder it was so effed up, really. Yeah. It, it's in, Yeah, it's infuriating, really. And um, I think as a treaty partner, we should know this. We should know how we came to be here. We should know our responsibility as treaty partners. We should know how the um, the crown the crown is responsible for a good relationship and maintaining this relationship. And we have not done that, and it really sucks. So um, that's something I'm trying to work towards too. Oh, that's great. You know, I think I'm going to share a story with you all. A long time ago, when I was a drafter, one of my uh, surveyors, he was a Alberta land surveyor and a, a Canadian land surveyor. So he had the jurisdiction to be able to do um, like Indian uh, surveys as well. So he came straight from South Africa. And he told me the reason why he and his family left was because at that time, uh, folks were taking back their land and literally shooting and killing white farmers and and being like we're taking over this land 
And um, so he felt it was unsafe for him and his family. And that's why he had moved to Canada. And I just found it so interesting that rather than, you know, focus on, you know, colonialism, his, his role as a settler, fixing that, you know, figuring all of that out, he didn't, he just up and moved. And so when I, when I am sitting here with you folks, willing to read about this, willing to talk about it, willing to do better as treaty partners, like you are doing what I wish more people would do. So I just want to emphasize that. And uh, Marla. Oh, I might have a bit of a ramble too, because um, I was super excited that this was on the list. I read this actually before joining the book club. And so, yeah, I, I'm actually not sure how I stumbled upon it now. I'm, I'm trying my best. I kind of made a commitment because I'm a big reader too. Um, a couple of years ago, it might be almost coming on three years to read uh female BIPOC authors and read indigenous indigenous authors male or female and so I've been having a great time in all sorts of books <laughs> I never got exposed to before and one of them was the this treaty seven book and and I agree it should be um like it should just be part of being a human <laughs> um I, and I also think feel that about the the MMIWG report. I mean, there's so much in there that is just common sense of being a good human to another human. Yeah. Um, it kind of boggles your mind sometimes, but um, I really enjoyed this book. I think one of the things I just, um, while it was very maddening and angering at how deceitful everything unfolded, it was also at the same time, like, kind of joyous to be reading it and have Indigenous perspective um, told. And you really got to learn some of those stories. And um, I haven't read a book really quite that's laid out that way before. So that, I think, was um, wonderful. Um, yeah, like Kat said, um, negotiating it in good faith or, or well, that's what the indigenous people were there for to negotiate good faith obviously not from um the white man's perspective um but it's it's made me really think a lot about the meaning of making treaty and um you know that that whole good faith and being good neighbors and taking care of one another and um but then also they had very practical considerations about um being given education and understanding that the world was changing for them and um, the expectation they were going to be provided equipment and tools to adjust to this whole new way of life and like nothing was provided or so poorly that it, it obviously didn't live up to what they were um, they had negotiated. And yeah, the lack of language. Oh, my God. You know, outright just um, like lying that they understood it and then and then but one of the things I found interesting was you know how they kind of um the indigenous people would you know they knew that this was happening right yeah. so that frustration of understanding that they don't know what we're talking about and yet here we are still coming to the table and willing to um willing to sign and hope that um they are going to live up to you know what what they've agreed to mm -hmm. um 
I just so so I was on a mad reading frenzy this weekend, and I just finished um, a short book by Billy Ray Belcour, and and it made me think of you, Michelle, so much. But also this book there, and and well, the book club in general. There are a couple. There are many lines, but there were a couple in particular that made me think about this too. And he, um, I'm just going to read them out to you. <laughs> I took pictures of them so I wouldn't forget. But he says on one part, it was any old day and we were in the middle of a genocide. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> That's so simple and yet sums it up perfectly. You know, and then he's, so he actually goes back to his reserve where he's from, Drift Pile Cree Nation. And this is, the book is a minor course. I would highly recommend it, everybody. The writing is so beautiful yeah. and heartbreaking at times. Um, but he's interviewing this person and, and they're asking him why. And he says, I believe there's a story here about how people are made to participate in the production of their own misery. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. That's it. Um, you know, and that is Treaty 7 from, you know, they like they they just totally intentionally pulled the wool over um, everyone's eyes that was there to to negotiate in good faith, as we said. Mm. Um, and I've also been thinking a lot about language and. Um, I was I was in a session with an elder and I asked him because one there was in that report, the MMIWG report, there's. Um, something to the effect that every language now is endangered. And that has really stuck with me too. Um, and I asked him about what he felt about language with younger people. And you're an elder now and you're growing older. And, you know, how do you pass that on? And he actually said he feels like it's almost at a crisis now that despite the fact that he doesn't necessarily believe in recording things, he actually thinks that needs to be done because he doesn't know if the language is going to survive. But his bigger fear is that the knowledge that is contained in those stories are going to go away as well. And what a tragedy that would be. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I'm a little bit in the book and like it's a, a lot of reflecting that is coming around to me at the same time in different conversations and other reading. Um, yeah. And next up, we tried to go, Mike and I tried to go to Blackfoot Crossing this weekend, but they're only open during the weekday. So I'll have to figure out a day to take off so we can tootle on down there and see the museum because I think that's uh, also important too. Yeah, I'm um, kidding. Yeah, and then I, and, and I think Kat, you pointed this out too, the differing worldviews. Um, and this same elder talked about, and he might be in the book because there's, there's someone in the book, Reggie Crowshoe, and I think it's him. But he doesn't go by Reggie. Yeah, so, Dr. Reg Crowshoe. The, yeah, he goes by that. that. Yeah, yeah. It's him. Okay, yeah. this is the elder that I've been able to like kind of speak to, um, like a silly settler that I am. But um, yeah, he, you know, he talks too about how we need to get past you know, the performative. And it's not just about beating and making moccasins and inviting an elder to come say a prayer. Like you got to ask the questions and you got to do the learning and you have to come and walk alongside us and not just, you know, we're not just there kind of for your pleasure. 
Um, anyway, I think that's all I have to say. <laughs> well, I but, thought you uh, brought up uh, good points and it seems to me that you understand that we are in a real-time genocide. And um, so I, I think what you had to say was incredibly important because I can't seem to get regular folks to really understand the gravity of what the genocide is. And I like, I'm like, okay, so we have a yearly report telling you how many of our children are murdered by the state. We have like reports telling you that how many of our women are murdered by the state where we have, you know, children in graves around schools. Like it, like, what is it going to take to explain what a genocide is when our people are dying of overdose and not getting proper support we're losing our language, therefore our indigenous knowledge. We're in the middle of a climate change crisis that could save the world, but colonial ego and greed like supersedes that. And like, I, I know it's racism, kind of back to what Carol is saying. People just cannot listen to somebody when you have a white supremacist mentality to think that somebody like that's not white could have something meaningful to say to you. And um, yep, that's still where we're at. And so to me, hearing what you said was very clear. You see the genocide at least, right? There's at least one person I know can say they see the genocide. And I, I know that's important because we as indigenous people are not just not hearing it, but we're hearing voices of the Tom Flanagan's, Daniel Smith's, who are you know Indian residential school denialists and won't acknowledge land theft, excuse me, anything for that matter. So I, I really took a lot from what you said that you understand the gravity of this. So, so thank you, Marla. And I know Marnie Spark, um, Mike, would you like to speak next? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I think I have a few points that kind of build on what other people had said. The first actually word that kept hitting me in the face was the word poison. Um, they were talking about um, some of the, uh, the things that were happening and the fact that there was poisoned meat or other poison to the land and kind of that ray of the thought that if the treaty was signed, there might be hope. And I mean, we're looking back on it with the knowledge of what happened afterwards. So it's very, normally I'm a very much an optimistic person, but it was very much a pessimistic read because you kind of know what's coming next, right? So it was very difficult to sort of read how, you know, even even in, despite what had happened and what was going on that, you know, whether it was Crowfoot or the other chiefs were still hoping that there was, you know, better things were going to improve and things were going to get better. And you kind of, we know what happened. Um, yeah, so I, I did study history as a minor in university and naturally as you can expect I didn't get exposed to any of this type of history um, 
and I thought it was, I, and I think this is something I think Marla maybe referred to as well, kind of the narrative we learn growing up in colonial society is that indigenous people weren't ready for the life, you know, that their life had changed and the buffalo were just about gone and they weren't coming back. We're always, we were always taught, oh, that's, you know, the treaties had to save the indigenous people from themselves, right? Because they weren't ready to adapt and weren't ready to move on to a post Buffalo life. But then actually reading this book and other learning since, you know, I graduated university, it's actually the opposite, right? It's yeah. the completely the opposite that they realized their, the way of life was ending but there was a future for them that they were trying to grasp and again with the benefit of hindsight it's obviously the fact that that was going to be stolen from them as well right that it wasn't quite enough that we stole the land we also had to steal the rest of you know even sharing the land or you know participating with together on the land so it, you know, I mean, I think, I think it's part of, and, and to get back to what Michelle said, I think just the education of people and they don't realize the word genocide and how much it applies. Um, and it's ironic, right? Like in, in the face of all the information we have, like how many reports do we really need to tell us that a genocide is happening and has happened and yet it kind of feels like oh let's do another report or let's get more information as opposed to yeah. let's just call it for what it is so yeah yeah i mean i think it was definitely a sobering read i i also actually i just look now it was published in 1996 right so it's I can, you'll have to do the math. I can't do the math right now in my head, but it's not like it came out two years ago, right? Like this, this history and this perspective has been out here for so long and to not have, I mean, the first time I got exposed to it was when Marla read it, right? Then, but to not have realized that it was here and that as somebody who lives on Treaty 7 land, I should have educated myself sooner. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are my thoughts. I, I just want to say, I mean, I know you you thanked us for being part of this group, but I wanted to thank Michelle because I've learned so much in this group. And, you know, the fact that you lead us through these stories and then through the MMIWG, it's great. And I appreciate it. Oh, that's great. Thanks, folks. Um, just because I, I can't believe I haven't said it yet. Uh, May 5th is Red Dress Day. And uh, there's an event here that's uh, at the Field of Crosses on Memorial and about 2nd uh, Northwest. Um, it's open to the public. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be here in Calgary. I might be um, experiencing my first real um, event with my sisters indigenous sisters on, uh, on i'm assuming the hill because um i'm assuming they're going to have one in ottawa 
and uh, yeah, I'll get to be with them for the first time. And I'm really excited to go and see folks. And um, but I, I'm sad that we have to every year do these vigils because every year there's more of our women who are taken. And I'm sure you all heard there was yet another landfill um, body found in Winnipeg. And, um, you know, I, I, I was just with a, a friend from o- Oneida. We went out to Banff for the day and he was saying that the uh, city had made right around their res landfill. So they're pretty sure they have women in theirs too. And of course the landfills are, are, have taken away the well water because the well water was then compromised with the landfills. So, um, you know, it's the genocide is right now. It's so painfully clear. And yet so many folks are going out of their way, like you said, make another report as opposed to just implement what we have. And, and the um, commission that did the uh, Nova Scotia shooting that came out with lots of recommendations that just overlap so much of the TRC and the MMIW report. And yet people don't like that. I I'm hearing all of this grand grandstanding from the politicians that we're going to implement these uh, recommendations right away. And, um, and I just find it very interesting because it's not the first time that the police have had a microscope put on them and politicians, politicians grandstanding, Oh, we're going to make changes that nothing was ever done. So um, it's just frustrating that it took, bunch of white people to die for them to care and and now they claim they're going to do something which i i don't have faith in um after obviously intergenerational reasons not to have faith in the word of the colonial crown (laughs) so yeah thank you all for for that and uh and and i hope wherever you are there's a red dress event that you can go to uh shelly i think you're up Thank you, Michelle. I highlighted a few um, passages that really hit me. It's like when people broke the law, they were helped so it wouldn't happen again. And our system is just a revolving door. And I think we could really learn. That really hit me, that one. Because I'm blanking on my words on what it's called in the Indigenous or what indigenous do with law i can't remember the word but is it reciprocity no restorative justice yes that makes more sense than locking people up because it just hurts the families but that's not what this book is about it just hit me the pre-treaty um that there was no evil in indian faith and that makes it just now I can't remember why it hit me, but I highlighted it. Well, Shelley, I say all the time that it yes. was the Christians who brought the devil to these lands. It was the Christians yes. who did it because they did. They brought this concept here, this concept of hell, evil, um, the devil. Like they brought that concept here. It yeah. wasn't here. They they imposed it with their Christianity. And I, I again, I feel like I say it until on top of the rooftops but like we we talked about carol it's just racism because i'm considered lesser than they cannot can't hear it from me right and then the blood word for treaty i'm not going to say it because i will butcher it means two sides must achieve a common purpose 
they the blood tribe was probably was trying to get a common purpose and then the colonial powers were just trying to dupe i, I want to say because it, it was already pre-written and they just wanted to get what they wanted and it just well and it's true because the indian yeah. act was created you know already yeah it says white men put in what he wanted in the treaty and told us them to sign it yep and then with all the um people that didn't speak the right didn't translate and were on his deathbed said that he was oh i just i knew that they were not good in the first place but now reading this book it makes it so they didn't know what they were signing and I just don't think people understand that, that it's so infuriating now to see it, that we weren't taught about this in school. They just like, oh, they, the indigenous wanted it too, and they were part of it. And it was like 50-50. No, it was 5% to 95% pushing what they wanted. So it was a really good book. It was a tough read, but it was a really good book. And sorry, my reading comprehension is not really good right now, but it it just, I did not give up this land. I only wanted to share it. And like, if we could get rid of some of the capitalistic and just share, we have enough for everybody, but we are in this greed mentality. Sorry, I went, yeah, I think that's, it was a really good book. I'm glad. I'm gonna pause. Wendy, I invite you to uh, chat with us. Thank you. Um, really uh, appreciate this book. I'm about halfway through. It is definitely taking me some time. Uh, one of the things I am uh, really liking a lot is is the beginning where it kind of lays out each person and you get to know a bit about them and then also seeing images of them like there's a lot of those images that really helped uh, for me to think about um, the individuals as well as the groups that were were trying to talk together so I found as I would get to other parts of the book I would keep coming back to those pages and I, I think there's something for me with looking at um photographs of people, whether they're current people or from a long time ago. Um, I, I tend to look at those images a lot because I think about um, small things. Like I think about what they were feeling like when they were getting that picture taken and why did they choose to bring the things into that picture with them. Um, thought it was very interesting. The part there's, uh, there's a page with two images. Um, one's quite a famous image, a painting of Treaty 7 signing. And then another, and then they were talking about how the second painting was actually just a painting of the first painting and that none of these images were actually good representations of what was happening. Um, so I felt like this book for me was kind of, um, I guess, metaphorically and literally painting a picture of, of who people were and what was going on at that time. Um, and really also, um, took me some time to, uh, I guess, more deeply understand the length of time, like for people to gather 
and then the length of time that they were there um, and, and kind of the buildup. So that's kind of um, interesting to me because it really told, so we've talked a lot already about the language and the language barriers. And certainly that was really terrible. Um, and I think we've already had a good discussion about actually the, um, everyone in, in the white settler group actually didn't care if people were understanding, like having language where they, they were communicating was not their point. Um, and, and then also just the awareness of each of the groups and the relationships of each nation that was there. So I appreciated getting a better understanding of kind of the relationships that they had had over time, you know, leading up until this point, the uh, other treaties that had recently been signed, they especially talked about some of those recent treaties in the U.S. Um, so I felt like uh, they didn't know fully, they, they certainly hadn't come to a place where people were understanding each other from the different sides, but I felt like actually there was a lot of deep understanding and um, a, a deep understanding that this was not going to be good. Um, that they, they already knew, but but really appreciated the leadership. Um, they come back to it a, quite a few times about Crowfoot. And really, I, I took away from that um, description of leadership was really seeing that you're, you're really, you don't have a good choice there in front mm -hmm. of you. You're really trying to minimize um, loss and death uh, for people. Yeah. And but still seeing that either direction was going to bring that. So I, I found that really um, powerful. And uh, just when we were talking earlier about Indigenous people coming to no, negotiate in good faith, I mean, I, I don't think the, the white people then or now um, really deeply know what that means. Mm -mm. Um, like that just that build up of relationship understanding is so necessary to negotiate with anyone. Um, and then the way that it had been described to me before getting the opportunity to read this book, it really just puts a big swath of like all the same on all the nations, all the groups is just like one side versus the other side and, and really misses that complexity that there were lots of different people's needs and um, relationships that had to be accounted for. So the other piece about that negotiating um, in good faith from uh, the Indigenous side just that statement that Crowfoot had made about um, the cannons that were there and, and pointed. And, you know, so it's pretty obvious this is not about like coming to shared understanding. No. And so that was just really powerful to think about those individuals. And then I would spend, and this is why it's taking me so long, because then I would spend time going back to the images of each of those people represented there and just thinking like how it would feel to be there for days, to think about this for months, mm -hmm. and and to just, um, you know, I, I'm sure they did understand enough to know, like the, you know, when they're talking about the literal signing, like this really isn't about like, did, did people sign appropriately? What they were indicating to us is what I think of when, um, when we talk about land acknowledgements, or we talk about the question of, are, are we're all treaty people? Like, that's certainly something that I think white settlers have a way to go to understand uh, we're part of this. Um, but I really, it helped me to understand that part in terms of what it means to be a treaty, treaty partner. I feel like it helped me to understand, um, you know, 
alongside all the grief and the rage that Indigenous people have been feeling for a very long time, um, just the reminder of commitment and responsibility and, and what they value, like it comes across now as well, that um, Indigenous people are the ones who understand being a treaty partner. Um, and uh, we have just so far to go to get there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I think um, maybe the last thing I wanted to say there was just, um, so a lot of it also made me think about uh, my own family. So my own history um, in this space. Um, my, on my father's side, uh, we moved to Northern Alberta. Uh, my, my family moved to Northern Alberta in the early 1900s. So we would have been the kind of people that all of this was getting laid in place for. Um, and it's complex for me to think about that. I also think about the questions that I asked my family, um, and I'm specifically thinking of my father's side of the family, as I was a child and growing up and just learning about who I was. Um, we were growing, I was growing up in Oklahoma, uh, which was interesting and complex in itself, um, because certainly, you know, you, you hear about the land run and various other things like, and I had lots of questions about where I was from. And I always found it quite interesting that um, even as a child, I felt like the answers were super hollow. Like it was very just... <laughs> It was like, you know, it was like the quick, and I don't know if it was meant like just a dismissive, like, why are you asking all these questions? Yeah. Because I do think, you know, those were the opportunities where my parents probably had thoughts about either realizing they didn't know very much about that, or um, there were things there that weren't, we wouldn't have been the good part of that story. Um, whatever the reasons were, they didn't go very deep um in describing it and and then the more I think about it and the more I'm like well that is actually a very white settler approach to all of this like it is meant to strip away the human details and the humanity it's meant to be very you know as we've talked earlier in the conversation um this is ancient history this is the way it is now and blah 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 but really um I feel like I was living that time of um, a lot of white people have have stripped away their connection to some of these things. And I think that's why there isn't this deeper understanding because all of those pieces have gone by the wayside, either deliberately or not deliberately. That's where we are. And, um, and then it's complex for me because I think um, I've talked to many people in Alberta at times when it's frustrating here and they're like, well, it's time to leave, it's time to leave. And, and then now it does make me always think like problems aren't solved by just leaving. And um, if you're leaving, what are you going to do to solve problems in that new place? Like you're not really um, grappling with the realities and, and it's a very um, hollow place to be. So I'm hopeful that um, more white settlers as they explore their own history um, can ask these questions and understand that it was complex. And, and that doesn't take away that it was difficult times for them, but it just, uh, this book really, I felt meaningful to me personally, as well as the, the learnings about Treaty 7. So I think that's where I'll stop. Thanks. Jeez. 
Well, I really invite you all to um, unmute yourself and Marla that get over it. It happened so long ago mentality makes me so mad. It's still happening. And even if you go back to the date of signing Treaty 7, even that is not that long ago, which is exactly true. 100% Marla. So thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm yep. Uh, go ahead, Shelly. You're um, muted. Sorry. What goes with what Marla just said is if they say, I wrote this down, this goes with ableism too. It says, get over it. Well, own it. If you want us to get over our ableism or racism, then, well, you can't really get over it. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, is that the white people need to own their history and need to own what present day problems are. They are, they have part of it too. And I always say that I was raised, I am, I'm unlearning my racist ways and I'm trying to unlearn my biased ways, but it comes up when you're angry or when you're emotional, but then you have to check yourself. So it's owning it. That's a great, great point. Thank you. Marnie, go ahead. I'm always intrigued when you talk about uh, Oklahoma, Wendy, because I was born there. I didn't live there long, but that's where I was born. Um, and um, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't have all my thoughts together when I came in. I had all sorts of Wi-Fi computer. So I arrived in a frustrated place. So, but one of the things that this book provided me that I did not have before was that bigger picture, which included the settler panic around the, I don't know how you say it. I think of it as Nez but it's Nez Pierce. Is that how it's said in English? I don't know. And the Lakota and their, their power as warriors and the white people's concern that even having almost starved them out that the Blackfoot were still a formidable force to them. Mm -hmm. um, that was, so they didn't really care what, what happened as long as the treaties got signed and then they could force people to do what they were saying, but just, I think that I had not really understood that even though they were in a bad way and that that was one of the reasons they felt obligated, felt obligated, all of them felt obligated to sign the treaty, they were still deemed formidable. Yep. Um, and go ahead. No, oh, I was going to say, and that's part of why the genocide, we had to get rid of that formidability um to feel safe and comfortable and yeah you were going to say something michelle oh no i i couldn't agree more um i was just going to say about the book um there were a few things uh kind of one of the questions i always ask everybody is what triggered you and um i kept getting angry throughout the what i did read because regularly it was said that the police will take care of you uh, the police will help you. And to this day, our biggest enemy is the police because they still are killing us. They are still murdering us. They are still not investigating our murders. They're still not treating us with respect. So it, it, I found that very aggravating when, it, when I would read it. And kind of back to what you were saying, Marnie, um, I was reminded that, and it was said in the book, that even despite the what was happening, the elders, because they were sitting there for some time and they were in ceremony and they kept seeing visions of us living in poverty and encouraged them not to sign the treaty. 
so it's so funny because like the, the, our own elders had the vision of what was happening, of what was go going to come. And they were, they were encouraging them not to sign it. So like, I've been told many times that it, the decision makers weren't the, the guys that you see, the crowfoot, the uh, sitting bull, it, it was literally the elders. They, they would go back to the elders and go back to the families, tell them what they're being told. And the elders were like, yeah, we had visions of complete poverty, destruction of our people. So no, you know, so like it, there's nothing that makes sense about the treaties at all, at all to me, um, you know, for, for Canada's propaganda that they say uh, kind of back to your point about, um, you know, how we were killing the Buffalo. I have read that in numerous books that are written from a settler point of view that we were the ones killing the buffalo like until there's truth in those books like until there's truth of people saying hey guess what for the last hundred years we've been telling people this and actually that's not the truth you know like how can we possibly have reconciliation we can't even talk about treaty and and actually that was hopefully something i wanted to kind of throw at you all too is that you, know, you can't have reconciliation without truth but you can't even really talk about our relationship and what reconciliation can be without talking about treaty like treaty is the foundation to everything and most canadians don't understand that and i was wondering if all of you kind of got from this book like the gravity of what treaty was should have been could be and how that could be the foundation to moving forward in a tr more truthful and and hopefully reconciliatory way um i was hoping that would be something that that kind of came from this book too uh, that's why to me, like my Indigenous 101 is always through land acknowledgement and, and the teachings of the land acknowledgement. So go ahead, Marla. Yeah, I think, you know, until, and I think this is a Western point of view, until we get past that whole mentality of, you know, I win and you lose. Mm. Okay, well, if you're going to win, I don't want to lose. So I'm going to make sure I win. Like, I don't, that. I, I just don't get it. <laughs> How can we not all win, right? And yeah. and why is it not okay to put in the effort to raise everyone up? You know, that's, I mean, we have to grapple with that too. Because if you don't understand that and you don't believe in that concept, you will never come to the point of reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. And for me, like trying to get people to quit with their, you know, racist and sexist lens so that they hear a two-spirit, like a, a Billy, Bill, uh, Billy um, Belcourt, you know, can they even hear him when he's a native two-spirit? You know, I do, I see, like, he can't even speak without it being poetry. Like he can't, like how many folks I see on TikTok that identify as queer in some capacity, it's like, they can't even talk without it sounding like uh, poetry. And um, because of racism, people can't listen to them because of their gender violent lens. They can't hear it, right? It has to be this white man sitting there. And unfortunately through our Reconciliation Action Group, that's why I always, um, I, I used to share a fellow named Liam Haggerty, but he kind of quit standing up for us. So now I, I uh, really share uh, Sean Carlton's words because as much as I wish they could hear it from me, they can't 
because their their bias, their hate for Indigenous people, their hate for women, like it's so strong, they just can't even hear it from me. So that's why you'll see me on Twitter and, and such sharing white men sometimes because it's just the hope that maybe another white man will will hear it from them since they cannot hear it from me because of their biases. So yeah, I'm really shocked at how quickly we kind of went through all of this, folks. Um, do you guys have any questions for me? I mean, I don't want to wrap it early, but at the same time, go ahead. Sorry, I thought I seen a hand up. You did. Wendy had her hand up. Yeah, sorry. I thought you you did too, Marnie. Um, I it just makes me think of uh, I don't know the uh, the quick um, conversations that the white settlers want to have. So when we talk about um, you know, I appreciate what you said there, Michelle, about beginning with land acknowledgement and continuing to start there. Um, and then that takes me to, you know, what does it mean to be a treaty partner? But then if you try to have a conversation about what's problematic about treaty, um, it can very quickly go to a conversation about like, okay, well, let's just scrap that and, and start again, like kind of thing. And it, it seems to miss the whole point about, well, that also won't get us to a good place because we are not in a good place. Like we are not ready for that, but I would love to hear if other people have more to say about that because I I have heard that more than once and um it seems to be where where we would have to get to go forward. Shelly go ahead. Like we have to acknowledge the ongoing genocide. There's more children in children's services now than in residential school. Like that they need to have people need to have that sink in that there's more pit children in care. Like I just don't get it. Like, and the UCP, I don't know what they're trying to do with children's services. There's been more deaths in children's services this year or since they've taken over from what I've heard. Like, I just, you can't fix something when you don't acknowledge that it's broken. Well, it's been interesting watching the Russian Ukrainian conversation because a lot of folks globally are just horrified and upset at the idea that uh, Russia has been going in and stealing the children and teaching them uh, Russian culture, Russian language. And, you know, they're like, well, that's cult cultural genocide. I'm like, ha ha, see, I knew you knew they're white people, though. So I guess you're upset because they're white people. Go ahead, Marnie. I've thought the same thing, you know, or you see it. Israel and Palestine, genocide is genocide. You can recognize it. So I have a question for you, but before that, I remembered another aha, all these things that I didn't do notes on. And that was that um, this treaty was signed 12 years after the civil war ended in the US. That kind of put things in a timeline perspective for me that was, um, I don't know, just in terms of the bigger picture of what was going on on this continent and how, how things were, how the, the whiteness was just being imposed everywhere as much as possible. So my question to you, it's a really, it comes from deep in me, Michelle. I don't know if you have any uh, can answer. So you just say that treaty is the foundation of everything. And what I don't understand is when this treaty is so fucked up, how how can it be a foundation? 
because it has to like we can't have truth we can't have reconciliation without truth so for like folks to not see how their treaty partners how the government did not screw them over from the beginning like like the stolen ah. land it's all stolen land oh i see it's like, not that oh, oh, oh how, how can oh. how can anybody say oh my god i am like a third generation canadian so i have every right to call myself an indigenous person to canada because <laughs> i hear that fre frequently unfortunately and i think well don't you understand treaty don't you understand why you're here how you got here and they don't and and how can we talk about truth if you don't understand how treaty was a reason to, um, you know, kill indigenous people, steal their land. And oh. the fact that everybody bought into it and was like, oh, the RBC told us we had to pay this mortgage. It's like, well, you're stupid. I'm sorry. I don't know why you bought into this system, but you did. You know, so from my point of view, it's like, okay, so you come in, you murdered all these people that you refuse to call genocide. You steal their land. And then when they're like, hey, we don't want, um, you know, any type of uh, retribution, we just want an acknowledgement of the truth so that we can teach our kids properly and move forward. They're like, well, I can't do that because I'm an Indigenous Canadian because I was born here. Like, we're not even kind of close to the same kind of conversation, right? Like, mm. like the ignorance that's there. And um, it, it matters for, for two reasons, because like, it's it's easy to say well these are canadian issues those are u.s issues but they're not they're the same issues yeah. because it was all indigenous people across turtle island that was murdered and it and the ignorance from both canadians and the u.s is stopping us from being able to have any sort of reconciliation because it's purposeful right like it's and and so like it when i read this and i like it i'm just going to go back to page friggin 78 he told the Indian chiefs, this is our terms of the treaties, and this is what will be in the treaty agreement. But in those days, there was nobody at all from the natives side to translate or understand exactly the legal jargon of the, of the treaty document. So by Canadian law, if a person doesn't understand what they're signing, it's invalid. So literally, this, the land that everybody has stolen, it's completely invalid for Canada to think they have title to it if they were unable to really communicate to the people. But white supremacy stops people from seeing us as people. And then, you know, it goes on about, you know, some of the bloods and some of the um, stony chiefs were like, fuck it, let's just kill them. And I hate to say it, but if ha that had happened, Maybe, maybe we would have had a more meaningful uh, treaty. I don't know. But the elders were saying, don't sign that treaty. I don't know what page it was, but I, I read them say that. You know, that they were having uh, visions in the ceremonies of the day that they were all there, or I guess the weeks that they were there, that they just seen our people living in poverty, that you can't trust the white man. And, and, and it was proven. Like our people were smarter and knew better and yet Canadians are like, well, I, I, I didn't know that. Well, geez, I, that doesn't matter to me moving on. Right. Like it, it, I, I just don't know how Canadians just don't see how treaty is the basis of all the lies that started our relationship. That's what I didn't understand. You see, I thought when you said that, that you meant you lauded the treaty and we need, and what you're, what I understand you to say now, which I couldn't understand, but what I understand you to say is that we need to understand 
that these treaties were signed and, and, and they were in good faith by one party and in an attempt to steal by another. And that is the foundation of everything that came since. That part I get. I thought you were saying that, that the treaty itself was something to be upheld, but I, I, the treaty was, <laughs> was the problem. So well, and, and, and think about that, it. All of the promises that were made, like, oh yeah, no, we're going to take care of you. The police are going to take care of you. We're going to give you an education. Like none of those things have been upheld. None of them. I loved where one of them. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, Michelle. Go I ahead. Should... No, go ahead. No, you muted yourself, sweetie. <laughs> where they said that. Um... The, the great mother, you know, queen, whatever, they call <laughs> yeah. her the great mother. The patronizing was just almost excruciating. It was yeah. excruciating. But the land, the great mother did not make this land. The creator gave us this land, not the great mother. I thought that was, uh, yeah, that was the point. I'm glad you brought that up because actually, if you talk to a lot of the older elders, they talk about that. They talk about how they signed with the queen. And that's what they're talking about, the great white mother right? Like they had to invent a whole new language to talk about the great white mother. They thought that this was in good faith with her. And look where we are. Go ahead, Kat. Well, speaking of the great white mother, um, that I don't, I know you're not a legal expert or anything, Michelle, but uh, my thoughts are that Canada should, you know, ditch the monarchy. But in doing that, that would mess up so many treaties. I mean, because we did sign the treaties with, I mean, the, the Crown signed the treaties with all the Indigenous people, so they would have to be renegotiated across this so-called country. So what are your thoughts on ditching the monarchy? Yeah, well, I can't stand just the whole concept of it, but I also can't stand the concept of Canada because like, like I remember being in, I think it was Math 10, and they introduced the concept of compound interest. And I was like, why, like who the hell benefits from compound interest? And, and they were trying to say it was a good thing. I'm like, no, 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 nobody benefits from compound interest. Absolutely no person. This is only for rich people and for banks. This is not for the people. And they were trying to like, you know, oh, well, don't worry about that point. And I'm like, it's a pretty big fucking point. <laughs> you know, and, and honestly, like, and that's kind of back to your point, uh, Wendy, about how, like, when people were talking to you as a child and you had questions and they, they, you could just tell, like, that's not a real answer. Like these kids know, these kids know that, that the natives were, were totally screwed over from, from every point, conceivable point, and it continues today and they know it, they see it. And when they try to address it with the teachers, with the parents, with anybody, they just get patted on the head. There's no understanding, right? So from my point of view, when it comes to the monarchy, like, you know, it was pretty clear the elders were like, don't sign the treaty, right? Pretty clear. And there was no war, even though there were cannons literally pointed at them, like, to say, and that's the other thing, you can't sign a legal document under duress, right? And yet that's clearly what it was. From either side, it's clearly there was cannons pointed at the indigenous people through the entire process. Everybody was like waiting for a war to break out right then and there anyway, everyone. There wasn't anyone who was like, is today the day? 
Everybody who knew today could be the day, tomorrow could be the day. We could have it today. It, it was completely under duress. There was no reason for these outsiders to come in and do this. I don't know. It, so from my point of view, I wouldn't mind getting rid of the monarchy, but at the same time, like Canadians, like to me, again, that would be the missing the point. Let's focus on this issue instead of this one, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. And also, well, another point, I'm glad some of the elders who um, talked about treaty making were women, but obviously every single person who was involved <laughs> in this process was a man, so. But kind of, I was trying to say that point earlier. All of the women and the elders were in the teepees. They're the ones who were in charge. They just told the sitting bulls and the and the crow shoes, or, or the crow childs to, you know, this is what we think. Mm -hmm. They couldn't sign that without going back to the teepees and telling the, the women and telling the elders. You know, so the idea that we're, that there wasn't, um, you know, women involved, like that, it, that's why it sucks the way this was kind of written too, because it's like, it's so very clear that they couldn't make a decision without talking and to the rest of the community, mm -hmm. right? And that was the way of our governance. And yeah. that was disregarded by the Canadian government or the crown at the time. Thank you. Yeah. And I bet the crown couldn't even see that women might be in charge even if there was a queen mother or a queen white, white mother, whatever, you know. Yeah. Well, and ironically out East, like that, that's what happened as well, right? Like they were like, what do you mean the women are in charge? And we'll talk to you, the men, right? So go ahead, Carol. Well, it's the old story of power, right? And um, like Michelle, you said, why can't we, like, why can't they see that we would all benefit if um, we renegotiated this or we had treated people equally, but it's that whole conversation. It's a conversation about bias, prejudice, power, and who holds the power. Men hold the power throughout the world. It's global. And um, especially white male power. Mm -hmm. And that, that is the hardest thing. That is the hardest thing to budge and things won't change until um, men acknowledge that yes, we hold they, we hold power, and we don't need to. We don't need this. We want it because we've been taught this. And I mean, my head is spinning because I, 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 I get so frustrated with this this conversation about power. Every like we cannot budge white male power. That's what caused all of this problem in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And like, it just is so hard to change. But anyway, I've, I've done my rant about male power. Yeah, I don't know, but you're not wrong. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm gonna share this with you all then. Um, I did a TikTok on it and I know you're not all on TikTok, but um, I was gifted this at Mount Royal. And um, what's really interesting about it is that these broken pieces of paper that you see, those are actually all treaties, that treaties one to 11. And, um, and let me see if I can get a better shot of it here. Um, 
I'll just kind of scan it here. So I'm just going to read it to you. Did you make that, Michelle? No, it was gifted to me. And this was the write-up they gave me. This is my interpretation and reflection of the historical and ongoing relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in Canada. On this canvas, you'll see at the top is treaties uh, 1 from 11, looking dated, burnt, crumpled, unorganized, displaced, and they represent what Canada thinks of the treaties. And I just think that's so powerful. I'll read the rest of, of it to you, though. Nothing, no real value to them other than using them to show what is now Canada's. Then you can see the barrels. I chose wooden barrels because barrels can hold important goods, just like all the goods the colonizers brought over as they crossed across the sea uh, to infect Turtle Island. You see blood seeping from them because their so-called goods were built off the bloodshed of Indigenous people. The pictures are laying in a pool of blood showing events that had happened since the Confederation of Canada on July 1st, 1867, which brings in the Canadian flag that is seen on the barrels. All the pictures show a very different event throughout the decades, showing the depiction of an oppressive, genocidal, racist, manipulative, and broken relationship Canada has continued to show. Below, you'll see the separation of four green and yellow braided sweetgrass. I chose four because four is an important number from the four colors of the medicine wheel to the four stages of life. Uh, sweetgrass has always been very important to Indigenous people as it represents positivity, strength, and connection to Mother Earth, which is a barrier to all the negativity above. Under, you have pictures of Indigenous modern-day warriors who are continuing the ongoing fight against the above oppressors. These Indigenous people have continued to be resilient through the hundreds of years of being oppressed by continuing to stay connected to Turtle Island. Which brings me to the last part, the turtle representing the traditional name of Canada. But if you look, there's no head representing the turtle hiding in its shell, showing the fear from over a hundred years of being abused. It floats on the water because water is life. And it also has been very important to indigenous people as most still do not have access to their basic needs such as water, but yet they are still fighting to keep it clean. So yeah, that was a pretty powerful gift that was uh, gifted to me um, from one of the Mount Royal students that I, I was lucky enough to present with. And um, yeah, I was really kind of blown away by it. And they do have a picture of like some of us here in Calgary um, at the bottom. So that was really like, really great to see that people get it and understand it. And I, I wanted to share it with you all because I wanted to give you some hope. Um, I know, Carol, how hard it is to try to fight against this white male patriarchy. I think it's the Michaels we're fighting against. I remember reading some stupid stat that uh, the majority of the uh, CEOs were called Michael or something. And I just kind of laugh when I think of that because my name is Michael in, in the only in the female form as Michelle, right? So I, uh, I just get a kick out of it because it's like, I don't know what it's going to take and I'm not for violence, but I'm kind of getting there, <laughs> you know, but I, I do have moments of hope when I see things like that. And um, I wanted to share that with you all because um, sometimes it feels like people don't get it, but especially when you talk to the youth, they get it. 
they see it. And the person who gave this to me actually came from another colonized country. And the great thing about uh, the work that uh, this one prof is doing at Mount Royal was really trying to showcase like colonization is something that, that is happening all over the world. And because of the colonization that is happening globally, of course, we get new Canadians. So, you know, I think it's important to really recognize that. So, yeah. So, Mike, I hope you don't feel too singled out after the Michaels conversation and the Michelle conversation. <laughs> I can tell you I got lots of uh, Michaels papers uh, regularly because most Canadians couldn't tell the difference between Michelle and Michael even. So it was, I, I appreciated when people would say Mike. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thank you so much. I don't know if anybody has anything else they'd like to say, but... I sure appreciated this discussion. Go ahead, Carol. Oh, just a quick thing. I, I mean, one thing that we can do, Michelle, in, in Alberta, those of us living in Alberta, an election is coming up. So do your homework. Do your homework and get this person out. Get voter down. She's she's the embodiment of um colonialism, everything, everything we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's a good point to bring up. Um, Banff just hosted um, this secret conservative think tank that's trying really hard to perpetuate the continued violence against the trans community, women, and bringing in uh, the same organization that lobbied the US. They, they're coming into Canada to try to lobby us to, you know, take away women's rights. Uh, go anti-trans and um, you know and and there's think tanks against indigenous people um, yes. coming right out of here and I just want to share my earrings I bought this at um, Sutina and this is uh, Sitting Bull so I like to wear these earrings for when I do treaty seven teachings or treaty teachings because uh, well he's Dene I'm Dene so he's my long cousin go ahead Shelly I was going to go to a drag show next week and it was canceled. I just mm. got a refund tonight. It was two big artist names. They had to find a new venue because they were at Jack Stinger. I don't know the details, but it was it was next week. It just got canceled. Same with Edmonton and Winnipeg. So I don't know. Well, let's hope it's not because of violence. I, I, but it's... Uh... <sighs> I don't know, our last um, counter protest where the folks said that they were going to show up, they didn't come. And there was no arrests or anything. The one in um, the Northeast here I went to, there was, and Derek Reimer got charged yet again um, with extra charges for hate speech and breaking his uh, parole because uh, he had gone into other libraries previously. So it was just ridiculous. And Larry Heather, he called us a name again. What was it? Uh, homosexual uh, vigilantes. And uh, Darcy and I were laughing because I, I got to make a t-shirt that says vigil auntie. Because I think, I think that's funnier. <laughs> but he also called us sex Mar Marcus once. So he has a whole list of names for us. Uh, you know, those who care about people. And I, I, I just can't believe anybody would call themselves a christian is the is it the federalist society a u.s group that is being brought here kind of 
kind of like it's kind of uh they call themselves something different in canada but it's the same mentality now i don't know if you all know but there was a group or a book that i long before our book club in 2016 there was a book called uh the road to armageddon by marcy mcdonald and she actually talked about then like way back in 2000s of how um all of the conservatives went down to the states to a republican type uh session to learn how to bring those republican demeaning um god-awful policies to, into canada and then of course harper and kenny did federally and then kenny continued to do it provincially and uh, i remember um daniel smith had said in a podcast a million years ago that she had gone to it and um her idea of libertarianism was in conflict with them because her idea was that women should have a choice over their own body and that they were all against that at that time so i had hoped she would be less weird but no she's proven herself to be incredibly um vicious so anyway yeah but i don't care what the name is it's the same type of think tanks you know in the us and canada that are trying to take away all of the rights that we've worked really hard at having. And um, I think a lot of folks don't know what's on the line. And I think uh, so many folks are ignorant about politics that they're like, well, I'm kind of tired of the liberals. So I'll go with the conservatives for a while. And it's like, you know, like if you had a reason, even like if it's because of the fiscal um, issue, like if you look at the, the two, it, liberals are doing great. Like we're one of the best top G7 nations. Like if you're you're all for this Greek capitalism, then you have to keep the liberals in, right? Because they're still doing the best out of all of them. Uh, anyway, I want housing. So what do I know? <laughs> anyway, apologies. Oh, thank you so much for coming. I always appreciate what you what you add. And uh, thanks folks for, for being a part of it. I guess it is eight o'clock. So thank you for, for the great chats tonight. Thank you for this book and for this group, Michelle. It's sincerely appreciated. Yeah. Oh, my, it's my pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to going over all the calls to action with you next or next month. So yeah, looking forward to it, folks. Good night. Thanks. Good night. Thank you. Take care, thank folks. You, thank you, Michelle. Yeah, thank you. You're a rock star.